Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening to Your Neighbor a Priest, a podcast featuring commentary and theological reflection on local news and events in Southwest Washington and the larger themes that impact all of us as we wrestle with the challenges of life, and in particular American life, in the 21st century. I'm Father Nick Mather, Rector of St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Longview, Washington. I am your neighbor, and I am a priest. On today's episode, we will look together at a hopefully interesting topic, the origins of some of our most famous holidays, and their supposed links to paganism. I hope you enjoy our episode today. I'm sure you've heard it said before that various Christian festival traditions find their roots in pagan practices and traditions. Conservative and liberal Christians often agree with non-Christians about the supposed pagan roots of various festival celebrations, including specifically around the date of said celebrations on the calendar, and the practices that have been passed down over time to commemorate those traditions. I think it's important as a Christian to challenge these notions that pagan festivals are so intertwined with Christian practices, not because I think that's a bad thing, but because in large part, it just isn't true, at least not in the ways we think it might be. And it's in learning the truth that we can deepen our understanding of not only our own history, but the why of our traditions and how when certain elements have seemed to be blended together, that has come to pass. I also want to clarify what we mean when we talk about paganism. The term pagan or paganism is really a catch-all term used to describe a variety of both religious and non-religious practices from monotheistic traditions, polytheistic traditions, non-theistic traditions, just local customs and cultures. But by and large, the term pagan is to refer to those that are by definition not Christian practices. So when we talk about the so-called pagan roots of Christian festivals, we're talking about a wide variety of practices, from early Roman practices to local cultural practices to the blending of local customs like Celtic practices with Christian practices. So today I want to take a closer look at the three most common Christian festivals that get accused of co-opting pagan traditions. Those are Christmas, Easter, and Halloween. And I will cite my sources today in the episode notes and try to denote them when saying them by directly quoting their work. I think the first place to start with each of these holidays is the date upon which the holiday itself falls. Christmas is celebrated on December 25th as the birth date of Jesus Christ in most of the Christian tradition. The Armenian church actually celebrates Christmas Day on January 6th, and we'll get to that in a moment. This date is the main source of the accusation that Christmas Day is a co-opting of pagan traditions. December 21st is the winter solstice in our modern times. But in ancient history, December 25th was actually the day that the solstice was celebrated uh, all the way back to the Roman Empire based on their specific calendar at the time. Thus, it's believed that there was a celebration around this period of time celebrating either Mithras or a feast of the birth of Sol Invictus, also known as the Unconquered Sun. 
to coincide with the winter solstice or shortest day of the year in the northern hemisphere. So clearly Christmas being on December 25th is an attempt to supplant these Roman festivals with Christian ones, yes? Not quite. The first issue is the historical evidence for these Roman festivals even existing in the first place. The festival of Saturnalia is generally agreed to have occurred from December 17th to the 23rd, but that's not the 25th. As historian Tim O'Neill argues, to begin with, the evidence for any kind of Sol Invictus festival on December 25th is actually quite thin. It rests mainly on one slightly ambiguous entry in the so-called Calendar of Philacolus, which was an almanac and list of significant dates and events dated to 354 AD. For December 25th, the calendrical part of this document has a specific entry, which was generally transcribed as Natalis, or birthday nativity, Invicti of the conquered one, and then a denotion that there were 30 games ordered for the birthday of the unconquered one. But which unconquered one? It's generally thought that this title refers to the sun god Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. Though this is not definite, given that the same document also refers to other feasts of the sun more explicitly, happening on August 28th and October 19th to 22nd. A much later source, the 12th century Christian Syriac writer Dionysius Bar Salibi, did record that the pagans were wont to celebrate the birthday of Sol on December 25th, and so attributed the date of Christmas to this. But it's not clear where he, centuries later, got this information. But if December 25th is not directly tied to a pagan festival that predates the Christian tradition, how do we arrive at December 25th as the birth date for Christ? Regarding the theory that December 25th was chosen to supplant pagan traditions, historian and Episcopal theologian Andrew McGowan writes, despite its popularity today, this theory of Christmas's origins has its problems. It's not found in any ancient Christian writings for one thing. Christian authors of the time do note a connection between the solstice and Jesus's birth. The church father Ambrose, circa 339 to 397, for example, described Christ as the true son who outshone the fallen gods of the old order. But early Christian writers never hint at any recent calendrical engineering. They clearly don't think the date was chosen by the church. Rather, they see the coincidence as a providential sign, as natural proof that God had selected Jesus over the false pagan gods. The first mention of a date for Christmas, circa 200, and the earliest celebrations that we know about, circa 250 to 300, come in a period when Christians were not borrowing heavily from pagan traditions of such an obvious character. McGowan goes on to explain, Around 200, Sertulian of Carthage reported the calculation that the 14th of Nisan, the day of the crucifixion according to the Gospel of John, in the year Jesus died, was equivalent to March 25th in the Roman solar calendar. March 25th is, of course, nine months before December 25th, and it was later recognized as the Feast of the Annunciation, the commemoration of Jesus' conception. Thus, Jesus was believed to have been conceived and crucified on the same day of the year. And exactly nine months later, Jesus was born on December 25th. This idea appears in an anonymous Christian treatise titled On Solstices and Equinoxes, 
which appears to come from 4th century North Africa. The treatise states, therefore, our Lord was conceived on the 8th of the calends of April in the month of March, which would be March 25th, which is the day of the Passion of the Lord and of his conception. For on that day he was conceived, on the same he suffered. Based on this, the treatise dates Jesus' birth to the winter solstice, December 25th. Augustine, too, was familiar with this association. In On the Treaty, circa 399 to 419, he writes, For he, Jesus, is believed to have been conceived on the 25th of March, upon which day also he suffered. So the womb of the virgin in which he was conceived, where no one of mortals was begotten, corresponds to the new grave in which he was buried, wherein was never man laid, neither before him nor since. But he was born, according to tradition, upon December the 25th. In the Eastern Church, too, the dates of Jesus' conception and death were linked, but instead of working from the 14th of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar, the Easterners used the 14th of the first spring month, Artemisios, in their local Greek calendar, which would be April 6th to us. April 6th is, of course, exactly nine months before January 6th, an Eastern date for Christmas at the time, and in the East, too, we have evidence that April was associated with Jesus' conception and crucifixion. Bishop Epiphanius of Salamis writes that on April 6, the lamb was shut up in the spotless womb of the Holy Virgin, he who took away and takes away in perpetual sacrifice the sins of the world. Even today, the Arminian Church still celebrates the Annunciation in early April, on the 7th, not the 6th, and celebrates Christmas Day, Christ's birth, on January 6th, whereas in the rest of the Western Church, and most, many Eastern churches, we celebrate the Epiphany on January 6th. Thus, we have Christians in two parts of the world that were calculating Jesus' birth on the basis that his death and conception took place on the same day, either March 25th or April 6th, and then coming up with two very close but slightly different results, December 25th and January 6th. This reframing of the Christian understanding of the placement of December 25th as the date of Christ's birth, helps us better understand how the celebration of that date was likely influenced after the fact. As McGowan notes, from the mid-4th century on, we do find Christians deliberately adapting and Christianizing pagan festivals. A famous proponent of this practice was Pope Gregory the Great, who in a letter written in 601 to a Christian missionary in Britain, recommended that local pagan temples not be destroyed, but be converted into churches and that pagan festivals be celebrated as feasts of Christian martyrs. At this late point, Christmas may well have acquired some pagan trappings, but we don't have evidence of Christians adopting pagan festivals in the 3rd century, at which point dates for Christmas were established. It's important that we honor the origins of our traditions as unique to the followers of those traditions while also still acknowledging how the church came to interact and absorb many local cultures and customs over time. But as we see here, the church's festival celebration came first, with the identified pagan elements coming alongside over time, but not as the basis for our festival celebrations. Easter, perhaps even more so than Christmas, 
appears to have deep pagan roots that far predate the festival celebrations of the Christian church or its earliest followers. This is perhaps most clearly related to the fact that the date upon which Easter falls responds in correlation to the movement of the moon. Easter Sunday is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal or spring equinox, at least as we understand it in the northern hemisphere. But that's not even 100% correct, at least not in the way we think it is. The Western and Eastern Christian churches actually celebrate Easter on two different dates, which only periodically align with one another for a shared Easter observance. The two churches vary on the definition of the vernal equinox and the full moon. The Eastern Church sets the date of Easter according to the actual astronomical full moon and the actual equinox as observed along the meridian of Jerusalem, site of the crucifixion and resurrection. The Eastern Orthodox Church also applies the formula so that Easter always falls after Passover, since the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ took place after he entered Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. In the Western Church, Easter sometimes precedes Passover by weeks. This is because the Western Church does not use the actual or astronomically correct date for the vernal equinox, but a fixed date, March 21st. And by full moon, it doesn't exactly mean the astronomical full moon, but the so-called ecclesiastical moon, which is based on tables that were created by the church. These constructs allow the date of Easter to be calculated far in advance, rather than to be determined by actual astronomical observances, which are naturally less predictable. What is true about the date of the celebration of Easter is that it was closely tied to the Jewish celebration of the Passover by the early church. While the date of Christmas or Christ's birth did not seem to be of great importance to the earliest church, Christ's death very much did hold importance. Andrew McGowan writes, each of the four gospels provides detailed information about the time of Jesus's death. According to John, Jesus is crucified just as the Passover lambs are being sacrificed. This would have occurred on the 14th of the Hebrew month of Nisan, just before the Jewish holiday began at sundown considered the beginning of the 15th day, because in the Hebrew calendar, days begin at sundown. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, however, the Last Supper is held after sundown. On the beginning of the 15th, Jesus is crucified the next morning, still the 15th. Easter, a much earlier development than Christmas, was simply the gradual Christian reinterpretation of Passover in terms of Jesus's passion. Its observance could even be implied in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, our Paschal Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed, therefore let us celebrate the festival. It was certainly a distinctively Christian feast by the mid-century, mid-2nd century, when the apocryphal text known as the Epistle to the Apostles has Jesus instruct his disciples to make commemoration of his death that is the Passover. This tying of the Easter celebration with the Jewish festival of the Passover becomes a bit muddled when switching to the Roman solar calendar as opposed to the Hebrew lunar calendar. Thus, the practice of the Western Church to set dates upon which the calendar can be predicted and which doesn't even actually observe the true vernal equinox in any given year, and the practice of the Eastern Church to align with the Passover calendar. Because of this, it's clear that Christian Passover celebrations commemorating the Paschal Lamb of Jesus Christ are deeply entrenched in the, in the tradition 
long before any outside influence is felt or attempts to absorb local traditions are made. As we heard in our conversation on the origins of Christmas, this Easter festival date would go on to influence the understanding of when Christmas should fall, noting that the Annunciation and Crucifixion would have fallen on the same day in harmony with one another. With that confusing bit of knowledge out of the way, how then can we address the claim that Easter has at its roots pagan celebrations? The first is actually the word Easter itself. Easter appears to come from two different sources, Esther, a pagan goddess of spring renewal, and Ostern, a similar festival for Ostara, celebrated likewise on the vernal equinox in Germany. Speaking of Esther as a pagan goddess of spring, we actually only have one recording of this name anyways, and it comes from the church historian Bede in the 8th century, who was making a note of local calendars and the names of the months, Esther being the name for April, and trying to clean up misconceptions around various church festival dates, which had yet to be condensed into one set calendar that everyone was following together. And fun fact, Bede is actually the historian who aligned the calendar into its two halves we know today, the era before Christ and the era after his death. While Easter is clearly celebrate, related to this word, the festival celebration of Easter in the church is more commonly referred to as Pascha throughout pretty much all of the non-English speaking world. Pascha refers directly to the feast of the Passover, and the biblical identification of Christ as the Paschal Lamb, with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection being tied to the Feast of the Passover all the way back to the biblical texts. There's also been an attempt to conflate the Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar with Easter, but any connections are obtuse at best and downright made up at worst, including an attempt to mispronunciate Ishtar to sound much more like Easter than it actually does, and they simply have no historical standing. But what about bunnies and eggs and such? According to some sources, the Easter bunny first arrived in America in the 1700s with German immigrants who settled in Pennsylvania and transported their tradition of an egg-laying hare, which is not a rabbit, called Osterhaus or Osterhaus. Their children made nests in which this creature would lay its colored eggs. Eventually, the custom spread across the U.S. and the fabled rabbit's Easter morning deliveries expanded to include chocolate and other types of candy and gifts, thank you capitalism, while decorated baskets replaced nests. Additionally, children often left out carrots for the bunny in case he got hungry from all his hopping. The egg is an ancient symbol of new life and has, supposed, has supposedly been associated with pagan festivals celebrating spring. But from a Christian perspective, Easter eggs have become to be said to represent Jesus's emergence from the tomb and resurrection. And in fact, the decorating of eggs for Christian Easter is a tradition that dates back perhaps as far as the 13th century, according to some sources. An explanation for this custom was that eggs were formerly a forbidden food during the Lenten season. So people would paint and decorate them to mark the end of the period of penance and fasting, and then eat them on Easter as a celebration. What's important to note in these traditions and even the acknowledgement of a springtime goddess named Esther is that these traditions and acknowledgements all come well after 
the establishment of the Pascha festival that the earliest church was observing in the second century. So while pagan traditions existed, they were again incorporated into the already established practices of the church and not the other way around. This brings us at last to Halloween, the pagan celebration of all things evil and the devil and Satan himself. Right? Not exactly. As Tim O'Neill writes, so atheist activists, neo-pagans, and evangelical Christians are all oddly in complete agreement. Halloween is pagan in origin, and both the date and the traditions around it derive from a druidic Celtic festival, Samhain. This strange consensus is made even more ironic by the fact that these ideas are almost entirely wrong. The name Halloween is a traditional contracted form of All Hallows' Eve. This in turn is a reference to the feast, the Christian feast of All Saints' Day, traditionally called All Hallows' Day, or simply All Hallows in English. In the Catholic liturgical year, All Saints' Day falls on November 1st each year. And as a first rank feast day was always celebrated with a vigil and later even with an octave. This means that it was not only celebrated on the day itself, but also like Easter Sunday and Christmas Day with preparatory prayers and a mass the night before. The vigil held the evening before seems as old as the feast itself. So Halloween refers to this vigil and is associated with those traditions. All Saints Day, as the name would suggest, is a commemoration held in several Christian denominations of all of those deceased believers who have attained heaven. In the Western tradition is followed by All Souls Day on November 2nd for remembrance of the dead generally. The veneration of the triumphant dead is a very old tradition in Christianity and seems to have its origin in the cults of martyrs in the first centuries of the religion's history. The celebration of an All Saints Day varied throughout the church based on local custom and would eventually synchronize onto this November 1st date. But nothing about that process has any mention of pagan rituals or festivals that may have coincided with that date. So what about that Celtic festival sawing then? Tim O'Neill again. The claims about the origins of Halloween lying with Samhain tend to be very detailed about this Celtic festival which references to all the key elements of it that thus made their way into Halloween traditions, trick-or-treating, jack-o'-lanterns, dressing in costumes and masks, and a general association with the dead. But when we turn to what we know about this pre-Christian feast day, we find few to none of these elements. There is certainly some evidence that November 1st was a key date for several cultures across the Celtic language group, marking the end of summer, the Irish word Samhain, seems to be derived from an ancient word meaning summer, but ultimately none of the customs and traditions that we can actually attribute to this celebration actually have anything to do with our modern understanding of Halloween traditions. So is Halloween pagan? O'Neill again. The short answer is no. Contrary to claims about the Catholic Church stealing a pagan festival involving the Druid peace and the people 
dressing up in masks and tricks and treats, the date and most of the traditions that we know of are firmly Christian in origin. The November 1st date that is the center of al Halamas was not derived from any Celtic original, and the original Irish date for an All Saints feast moved from April 20th to November 1st due to the influence of continental and English liturgical practice. That this meant the new All Saints Day fell on the quarter day of Sawing was pure coincidence. Contrary to repeated insistence in popular sources, scholars can find no clear indication of any ritual or religious practices even associated with Sawing, and certainly none that can be traced to our later Halloween traditions. Masks, costumes, trick-or-treating, Halloween games, etc. all either have known traditional Christian origins or simply cannot be linked to anything definitely pre-Christian. Possibly the main thing that does connect Halloween to earlier beliefs about Samhain is the idea that it is a numinous time of year when this world and the other world become closer, and thus it is a time to be wary of malevolent entities. But how much of that idea comes from pre-Christian beliefs, and how much of it is a result of a Christian feast focused on the afterlife and the dead, is again impossible to tell and it's most likely some combination of the two. So again, the reality is that while we can certainly see where holidays have shared dates, and even a blending of local customs with the church festival, that doesn't mean that the Christian tradition has sprung up out of a predating pagan tradition. And in the case of Halloween, it may actually be the opposite, that Christian traditions, specifically around almsgiving, which morphed into trick-or-treating, and the presence of spirits in the night, our spiritual ancestors in commemoration of the departed in vigil before All Saints Day, influenced the already observed local holidays that marked the end of summer. Christmas, Easter, and Halloween all clearly have morphed over time in their celebrations and the pieces of different cultural and commercial traditions that have come to be associated with each do leave us wondering about the original origins of these festivals and how they came to be celebrated on their respective dates. We're an inquisitive species that likes order and confirmation of our biases, so it makes sense that these concepts that pagan traditions influence the Christian celebrations at their foundational beginnings have spread. This isn't to say that we cannot find pagan influences in the traditions associated with each of these holidays, we know that many of the decorative traditions and food traditions and seasonal traditions and so on do have some, and sometimes tenuous, roots in local cultural celebrations that have since spread to be considered a part of the religious celebration. But these have come long after the fact. The original celebrations of these events were in fact celebrated in stark contrast to the pagan celebrations of the time of the early church. In fact, the early church wanted nothing to do with the pagan celebrations and very intentionally stayed away from those celebrations as it established its own practices and festivals. As the church grows and develops over time, it meets many different cultures and as a manner of ingratiating itself into the local culture, adopts different customs and practices to coincide with the already established Christian traditions. So any of the perceived quote unquote pagan roots of various Christian holidays is in fact the Christian church's attempt to redefine local practices to match what the church already held up 
as the important festival dates and not the other way around. And as we've seen, this is clearly supported in the history of the origins of the Christian traditions and often in the actual origins of the pagan traditions themselves. Thank you for joining me today for Your Neighbor a Priest. Hope that you found today's episode interesting, enlightening, and perhaps challenging as to what are often the generally accepted truths about our traditions that simply do not hold up to any level of scrutiny. I think this serves as a reminder that we should look to the facts of the matter before allowing assumptions and asides to stand in for the truthful reality. You no longer need to feel it is necessary to excuse our practice and traditions as being tied to paganism because the reality is they're not, and they never were. That's all for today's special episode. Blessings on your journey.